I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is Sir Michael Morpurgo, best known for his book War Horse, which became a hugely successful stage show and film. Since his first book was published in 1974, he's written well over a hundred books and he was the third children's laureate. Thank you very much, Sir Michael Mopogo, for joining me today for Twice Upon a Time. Have you got used to being Sir Michael yet? Um, not, not really. When I look in the mirror, I'm just the same as I was before, which is really annoying because I'd like to look like Sir Lancelot. <laughs> but you don't. You just sort of say the same. Do you remember I got when I was young? I don't know if this ever happened to you, but I remember getting confirmed when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15, and I remember the bishop putting his hands on my head and then walking out of the church afterwards feeling exactly the same as I did before, and I I was sort of wondering what that was all about, and um, I sort of feel a bit the same. I I do, I I like it when I see it written down, but I don't Uh, like it spoken. It just confirms who you are to us. I think that's its gift, really. You've chosen, uh, well, tell me what you've chosen. What is the book that made the biggest impression on you when you were a child? I wasn't a great reader when I was young and was brought up in a house where there were books everywhere. We didn't have walls. We had bookcases and there were just books, books everywhere. Um, and I was very much encouraged to read, which is great, by my mother and by my stepfather. I think the problem was slightly that I was more than encouraged by my stepfather. He put me under quite a lot of pressure to enjoy uh, books that were too difficult for me. So I would be um, handed Oliver Twist when I was maybe nine or something like that in extremely small print and um, be expected really to read it. And I found that really quite hard. I also found it hard to answer the questions that were asked afterwards. My mother, on the other hand, used to read to me out loud. And I loved that. I loved listening to her voice. She read very beautifully. She was an actress. And I, you know, I just love the fact that she spent time reading to us and so I, I, I wasn't literary in the sense that I loved books. I liked Enid Blyton because I could get the print was big and because something exciting happened on every single page, actually every single paragraph. Um, but then at a <laughs> certain point, and I'm not sure when it was, they began to leave me feeling, do you know what it is when you've had a couple of chocolates from a chocolate box? Enid Blyton was a bit like that. I liked it and I wanted more, but then the third chocolate wasn't as good as the first one. And you got Perfect bored with it a bit. And then I came across in the school library a copy of Treasure Island, which I'd heard of before. Of course I had. And I'd probably seen a film, I should think. I don't know. But anyway, I picked it up because I liked the title, Treasure, and Islands. I was always fascinated by islands. 
So I picked it up and I read it. And it was the first book I think I'd ever read where the characters were complex enough for me really to believe them, where the landscape was so beautifully painted and drawn that I could live in it and, and I could smell it. And every single paragraph I found fascinating. And the reason for that was that I was being drawn bit by bit by bit right from the beginning when Billy Bones arrives at the inn. You know that, that something dreadful is going to happen. I remember him as if it were yesterday as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a handbarrow. A tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man his tarry pigtail falling over the shoulder of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred with black, broken nails, and the sabre cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cove and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifteen men on the dead men's chest. Yo-ho-ho ho, and a bottle of rum. Jim Hawkins is more and more aware that this is a, there's something pretty shadowy going on here. Uh, and more and more you're drawn into this sort of murderous world of pirates without really knowing until, of course, you get into the barrel of apples on the Hispaniola. When he's on the Hispaniola and they're sailing off to fine Treasure Island, and of course the, 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 the chief mate is this Long John Silver, and they all think he's, he's funny, uh, Jim Hawkins likes him, everyone likes him, he's, and this is the point, he's really likeable. He's got terrific yeah. charisma, this man. And of course he's a cutthroat and a villain. But Jim Hawkins doesn't realise this until he's in this barrel of apples on the deck of the Hispaniola, and he overhears what's going on, and what's going on is mutiny, and, and, and a plan to cut the throat of uh, all his friends. The only question to them is when you cut the throat. And the whole debate is about, are we going to get the treasure? Because that's what this is all about, going to find the treasure, because they've got a map, and then do it on the way back. And they need the captain, Smollett. They need him because someone has got to get the ship back, and they're not really good enough mariners themselves. So it's quite, not a question <laughs> of whether they're going to murder these people. It's simply when. And it all it just gets darker and darker and darker. And then, of course, there's the battle and all the business of hiding behind this great high fence there and defending themselves. It's just terrific. And uh, it builds and builds and builds. And it never, never lets you down. And it's full of surprises. So he was the first author I read, I think, when I thought, this is not Ine Blyton. You know, this is not. <laughs> You've got to work it out a bit. And you've got to think it through a bit. This is not chocolate. <laughs> and you've got to be the person. I mean, the great thing about the, the book is that I became the main character. I, I really became Jim Hawkins hiding in that barrel. I was terrified. I mean, really terrified. And I think that's the sign of a book, really, that is wonderfully written. You're, you're just deep into the adventure, longing for. And I think when I was in that barrel, I just wanted to go home. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're slightly trapped by the apples and by the barrel and by this, these dreadful mutinous people who, who would cut your throat if they found you there. It's extraordinary <laughs> effect it had on me. And if I'm honest with you, I think he's still my favourite author. 
all these years later. I think he's very underrated. A lot of people think of him as a just a children's writer because many of his most famous books, whether it's Kidnapped or Treasure Island, are read by children. And I have to say, by boys. They get boys' stories. These books are full of that, this daring do that um, boys, they go through a patch of this. We do grow up in the end. But to get me into reading, this was quite something. And then, of course, I learned later on, this wonderful man who died sadly at the age of 44, Robert Louis Stevenson, yes. was a remarkable writer in the sense he could turn his hand to anything. I mean, he wrote wonderful poems, very often about the countryside. He was very lyrical in his writing. And then he could write really dark, dark novels for uh, adults. Uh, he could write uh, travel books, travels with my donkey, all this sort of thing. He was just extraordinary. He could turn his hand to everything. He had essays. And he just got better and better and better. And then sadly, he was always poorly, Robert Louis Stevenson. I think yes. he, he wasn't well. And he was always looking for a, the right temperature of a place to go and live where his chest would improve. He had infections, I think, in his chest. And, and he never did. And um, he went to Samoa in the end, uh, way out in the Pacific, because, I, again, for the climate, I think. And, in fact, I've got a picture of him at home, which I sort of keep on my desk, of um, him lying on his bed in Samoa. And it's rather a remarkable picture because it's made me write the way I do. He's got pillows piled up behind him, <laughs> many of them. And he's sitting up in bed, clearly not well, but... who with his back against these pillows, with his knees drawn up in front of him, and with a writing book on his, resting on his knees. And I know I was looking at a certain time in my life to not to have to write sitting at a desk because it hurt my shoulders and my wrists. And Nothing worked until I saw this picture of Robert Louis Stevenson lying on his bed with his knees drawn up, and I thought, I'm going to... The man who wrote Treasure Island wrote like that. I'll do the same. Well, it, is, it is extraordinary that he wrote Treasure Island in bed because it's such a... Not really, as it's such a deeply physical book, and all the characters is yes. so at odds with this frail man who had to be constantly aware of yeah. his own ill health. Yeah. And yet, even the people with impairments of any kind, yes. even, even Blind Hugh or Long John Silver, any of the others, despite all that, have yeah. immense strength. Yeah. yeah Nobody yeah. is weak in this. No, absolutely not. And even, certainly Jim Hawkins might be small, but he's got plenty of strength. Doesn't he at one point almost sail the ship himself? He does. He, he does. does. I mean, for God's sakes, yes. it was a really big ship. And he's, <laughs> he's up and down masts. He's at the rudder. He does everything. I mean, that, that makes a boy <laughs> feel. he shoots his fellow crew member, but maybe we should gloss over that. Yeah, gloss over it. So. <laughs> but it is extraordinary how, how much power is given to that central character. Yes. And, and you feel very empowered when you're reading it. Well, what about you when you were reading it? Did you, did you take it somewhere special to read or was it encouraged at school? Um, no, it wasn't encouraged in school. It was very much encouraged at home. Uh, reading at school was an, an exercise. It was something you did in English and then you got tested on it. So I suddenly came from this really rather wonderful home from where my mother had inculcated in me a fascination for words and the music in words and for poems and for stories. She'd done that by reading to me. Then I found myself at St. Matthias Primary School off the Warwick Road uh, in London and going into a class and realising that actually books were not for that. They were for exercises and they were for grammar. And 
And then there, were t there was testing. And I didn't do well in the tests. And my handwriting wasn't very good. And my spelling wasn't very good. And there were lots of red marks across my work always. And I associated that, I think, with books very quickly and stories. And I really stopped any kind of reading at all. It was years, really, before I could read books again without it being a school exercise book. I mean, I got my then O-level, and I got my then A-level. I didn't do very well in it, but I sort of did that sort of thing, even at university still. It was an exercise until one day at King's College London when there was a wonderful man called Garman's Way, who was a professor, I think, who um, used to sit on a desk in a tweed suit, I remember, which always smelt of pipe tobacco. And he was sitting on the desk and he'd read something like Beowulf in the original language, an ancient language. My mother, when she read her poems and her stories, she read with a passion, as if this was the most important thing in the world, the story of the poem. And you believed everything she told you through the story or the poem. And suddenly there I was, now 20 or so, sitting in this uh, tutorial with Garman's Way reading me Beowulf. And it was the same thing. He was utterly passionate about it. I didn't understand a half of what he was reading. But what I got was that he loved it. And I think that was the key. And then I found myself not that long after teaching in a junior school, trying to inculcate in my children the same love of stories that my mother had given me. And I went exactly by the way she had done it. I only read to them what I liked and loved myself. And I found that worked. And very soon I was telling my own stories. So to start with, Janet, I wasn't really um, that good a reader. And I, to be honest, I don't think I am now. I'm much, much more contented uh, writing than I am reading. I read mostly for research for my writing. It's very strange. I've got a very awkward relationship with reading. You know, um, I was struck when I, I, I did read it as a, as a child. And although Stevenson, and I think he's a lot wittier than people give him credit for, but he, he says, you know, women are excluded in this book. And of course, apart from the poor mother, they don't really get a look in. No, they're, they're sort they of mentioned very much off stage. Yeah. But I was struck by how emotional it is. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that comes through. Which I hadn't yeah. remembered. I obviously, you know, I was, I was getting like you getting to the treasure. But um, a bit further on in the book, um, the death of Tom yeah. is so poignantly described. Yeah. It made me feel quite old now. Extraordinary. I think it's why it's utterly believable is because you can go. Yes, you live it for the adventure, but then suddenly you're in the middle of tragedy. And that's yeah. what's wonderful about literature. It surprises you constantly. Good literature does, great literature does. And Stevenson could do that. He was he was um, a truly remarkable writer. I mean, it is so well written. So and the dialogue's extraordinary. I was thinking, oh God, I read yes. it. I do hope Janice isn't going to make me read this, but how do I do those accents? <laughs> they're fine. What's really interesting, they're fine on the page. But the minute you try to start talking like Long John Silver, it, it, it makes a mockery of the whole thing. It's very, very interesting, that. Uh, unless you're a proper that actor, is, isn't it? which I'm not. Well, well weirdly, because Long John Silver is the template for every pirate to follow. Yes, and there he is, an imaginary character. Yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, yes. everything. Absolutely. Everything, the parrot, the legs, the, the yo-ho-ho, the, you know, yeah. them is the dial be the lucky ones. I mean, he really is extraordinary. And yet, on the page, he is such a beguiling character. 
He He's is. really sophisticated. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The other thing that surprised me rereading it now is how late in the book they actually go to sea. In my memory, you know, they pretty much uh, get a map, go to sea. But half the book is is taken up with the process of doing that, which must have been then, but it's fascinating. Well, it's only fascinating because it's not slow. I mean, honestly, from the first page, tap, 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 and you know stuff's (laughs) going to happen. It's really, you can sort of feel the build-up. The the, the film music is there in your head while you're reading this. So that it, the, it, it, you're quite right, but it does pass very quickly or pretty soon on that boat. Yes. And, and the other thing is, because it made such an impression on me, I, for me, almost every boat I get on, I was on a cross-channel ferry not long ago, and I remember <laughs> driving onto it and thinking, this is not at all like the Hispaniola. And you sort of, <laughs> it's just the boat that takes you to big sea is the Hispaniola. And, it, 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 it's, and that's wonderful. And do you know what it did, Treasure Island, for me, apart from the sea, mm-hmm. is it made me completely and utterly fascinated in my writing life by, by islands. I go regularly every summer to the Scilly Isles, um, uh-huh. where, of course, pirates came quite a lot, uh, many hundreds of years ago. Uh, I go there now, and I don't know, I've written, what, seven or eight books, Why the Whales Came, The Wreck of the Zanzibar, all sorts of things. I've written about the Isles of Scilly. And then... I dared once, no, and I think I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite pleased I'd, I tried. I did want to write a book which seemed to me to echo the spirit of Treasure Island. And this was uh, an island actually not far away from where Robert Louis Stevenson finally died in, in Samoa. It was an island in the, uh, in the Pacific, and uh, I called my story Kensky's Kingdom. And it's entirely, entirely my echo as an adult in my head of Treasure Island. There is no treasure. It's a story I heard, and as you may know, many of the stories I write come from history, come from truth. And um, Kensky's Kingdom I wrote because I read an article in a newspaper about a Japanese soldier left behind on an island in the Coral Sea, it was, after the Second World War when, as you may know, there were three or four of these individuals who refused to believe that the war was over. And I thought to myself, 
well, wouldn't it be interesting if a boy of today, like Jim Hawkins of today, uh, was on a yacht with his mum and his dad, and they were doing a voyage around the world because they're Everything had fallen apart at home and they had sold their house and they sold a car. And it's a story about this boy falling overboard with the dog, finding himself on an island, thinking he's alone. And his mother and father, because all this happened in the darkness, have sailed off into the darkness. They don't even know he's fallen overboard. And um, anyway, he crawls into a cave, wakes up in the morning and there's this little plate outside, some fish and some fruit. <laughs> and he has fallen into this island which has been lived in over 20 years by this Japanese veteran from the Second World War. And, of course, he's a boy of today. And so it's a story about how they have to share the island and what he discovers about friendship and what the Japanese man also discovers about actually other people are quite interesting, not just myself. Anyway, that's my version of um, my own treasure island. And I'm quite sure I would never have written Kensky's Kingdom, nor my books about the silly hours, unless I hadn't been utterly fascinated by Treasure Island when I was a little person. Your new book, When Fishes Flew, is concerned with an island too, so it's obviously a, a deep and continuing fascination. Yes, Fishes Flew about Ithaca. Again, it's always places I've been and it's things that happen to me. I always wonder what writers who have a proper imagination, who invent stuff out of the blue, and there are writers like that that do it wonderfully well. But I really can't do that. I went to Ithaca because that is where the great writer Homer is supposed to have lived. And of course, it is the place where Odysseus came back after 10 years at Troy. And he came back to his wife, Penelope, who'd been waiting all these 10 years on the island. But he ended up walking up the very beach we were staying on in Ithaca. And one day this old lady was just walking in her black dress through the shallows, doing something she did every day, which was to pick up plastic and bits and bobs that the sea had washed in. She did it every day religiously, which I thought was rather wonderful. And then suddenly she was calling to us, lifting her hands up out of the water and calling us over. So my wife, Claire, and myself walked over to see her. She was holding in her hands a flying fish. I'd never seen one this close up. I'd seen pictures of them, and I might have seen one or two flashing by somewhere at the sea, but yeah. I'd never seen one this close. And then she talked in quite halting English. She said, um, it's dying, you know. And then she said something quite extraordinary. She said, and they speak. Do you know that flying fish speak? And I'm thinking this woman is really mad. Um, <laughs> we better sort of move away. And she said, no, 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 no. They do watch. And she got her finger and ran her finger over the top of the fish's head. And this is what it sounded like. I tell whoppers sometimes, I'm a storyteller, <laughs> but my wife doesn't. And she and I were just completely blown away. This fish was talking. And I'd never in my yeah. life ever thought this was a fish talking. And I went and lay down after that and I thought, there's a Greek god called Proteus. And Proteus could change himself into anything he wanted. 
that fish was Proteus. It just sort of came to me. Mm. And I thought to myself, that's extraordinary. And I was buzzing with it and buzzing with it. And that same evening, it's the proximity of these events I really love. I don't know, we had a meal or something. We were walking along the front in a place called Vathy, which is the main town there. And we were just walking past this house. And we saw there was a man sitting on a chair outside in the veranda. I raised my hand and I said, good evening in my best Greek, which isn't very good, but I said it. And he replied, hello? <laughs> so I said, are you Greek? He said, yeah, and Australian. <laughs> I said, hang on, how come you're here? What, 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 what? And there's an old man, he's in his 80s. And we stopped and he talked. And he told us that when he was five, he had been living on that, in a house on that very place where this house was now. And there was a huge earthquake. 1954, I think it was. And many, many people on that island died, as they did on Catalonia next door. And in large, large numbers, those that survived left the island because there was nothing there. And his family left, and they went to Melbourne in Australia. And he, as he was growing up, had promised himself, this is the story he told us, and I believe it, he promised himself that when he had the money, he would go back and he would rebuild his family house and I was just so completely fascinated because I knew perfectly well, as everyone does, that flying fish cross the oceans. So I thought, mm -hmm. hang on, I'm going to link up the life of someone growing up in Melbourne, a young girl. And I'm going to have someone who lived on Ithaca, who reflected the history, not just of Ithaca, but of Greece in the last 2,000 years. And this is a great yeah. aunt. It's her great aunt who um, comes to visit them in Melbourne from time to time. And it's always an event. Every two years she comes. She's getting older and older and older. But she brings all her Greekness with her. And she really likes this woman. She's full of life. But then she goes away after a couple of weeks and doesn't see it for another couple of years. And then one day she doesn't come anymore because she's too old to fly, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And this girl growing up makes it a sort of vow in her head that the first thing she's going to do when she leaves school is to go to Ithaca to find this great aunt. And then she goes down to the beach one day and uh, she's sitting on the end of a pier and she's dabbling her feet in the, in the sea. And this flying fish is there. And it's the flying fish, this Proteus, to tell her <laughs> the story of her great aunt, who they all presumed in Australia was this rather doolally old woman who turns out to be a, a, a modern Greek a heroine who has played her part in all the great tragedies and times of this island. Um, so that's why it's called When Fishes Flew. Um, does, it, does it reference that G.K. Chesterton poem then, When Fishes Flew and no, Forests I, Walked? No, I, um, I referenced that and um, tried to persuade my publishers it's all right to use it, and they <laughs> finally said yes. I love the title. I think it's the best title I ever invented, mm -hmm. although I know perfectly well, of course, G.K. Chesterton did it. Yes. It doesn't <laughs> reference back... Well, it does to some extent, because that tells links, does it not, to God and to ancient times. And yes. it, it is about, you know, when fishes flew. It, it's, it's the mythical times and all the rest of it. So I suppose that there is a link there. But you don't put it this way. You don't have to know his poem. Actually, I should have spoken to you before, because what I should have done is to put the poem in the book. Right, it'll be in the paperback and you'll be responsible. Hey, thank you. Well, also, weirdly, um, G.K. Chesterton said that um, 
Robert Louis Stevenson was a man who always seemed to pick up the right word with the point of his pen, like a man playing spillikins. Did you say that? She's just such a, yes, amazing thing. Isn't um, that wonderful? I must remember, I'm just that... writing it down now to put that poem in there because it's really important. And I know the poem very well. It was one of the poems. Do you remember I said my mother used to read to me? Yes. And she wrote me that poem again and again and again. She loved that one. And I think it's why that came into my head. And I thought, well, this is so good because it does take us back to another time. But if the poem's not there, no one's going to, or very few people will know it. Thank you for that, Janet. I'm not going to pay you any royalties, nor G.K. No. Chesterton. It's just pitching it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm happy that we've made this connection. Actually, the other thing that, that struck me reading the book is, first of all, when I read it, I was I was not really aware that it was a boys' book. I mean, obviously, he I know he was like he was joking that he he wanted to exclude women, but actually, he couldn't help telling a good story that everybody loves. But it is very violent. It is really it is. violent. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. how, how much truth do you think children can stand? So, the days when I was growing up, I'm now seventy eight. So when I was growing up in the forties, um early 50s. It was a world where parents, by and large, protected you from what was going on in the world which they thought children shouldn't hear about. Yeah. Well, parents still do that. But it's increasingly difficult for that to happen because children can access this for themselves. And again, there's no point in denying that and thinking, well, they shouldn't. Truth is, they do. And so when even in a normal day, uh, they're back at school and mum's home from work and dad's home from work and they're sitting there and, and the television's on. Maybe no one's watching it, but a child may be watching a bomb mm. fall on Syria, um, children being carried out of the rubble. Well, I never had to face that sort of stuff when I was that age at all. Um, they, they, they face it and turn away from it or look at it, um, you know, every day, a lot of them. And yeah. so what one mustn't do when you're writing books is to then patronize them and, and say everything ends happily ever after. It's important that happens when they're really young, so they're reassured by the stories, they can sleep after them and we're not traumatizing them, that's really important. But there comes a time when they are beginning to look at the world out there and beginning to realize the difficulties and the problems. And very early on now, they're doing this. I mean, you know, it is, it's not an accident that children are, are leading this climate change awareness uh, as much as the grown-up population. Why? Because they're hearing about it. And they know it's, yeah. it's their world. They know this stuff, and they feel it very deeply, and it makes them very angry. And so when you're writing stories, and you know they're going to be read by these extraordinary people, these children, one must acknowledge that they have a, an understanding of the world very, very young, which I didn't have till I was in my 20s, you know? And books should reflect that. Another thing that struck me is a real parallel between um, Treasure Island and your stories, in that Jim, although he's the narrator, and I, d I don't know how old is he supposed to be at the beginning, about 16? 7, 12, something like that. So he is the hero, but he's only the hero by doing what he does, yeah. and what he does is noticed and seen. And I think that's what you do brilliantly in your books too, is that yeah. you don't make children special and getting different powers. Yeah. You just create a circle around them and say, 
look at this child. Mm. This child is doing what children do, but don't no. miss this moment. Don't miss this moment. Yes, and children are very good at not missing moments. Um, they, they, they live in the moment, don't they, very often. And anxiety comes, I think, when they're living uh, too much in the future or indeed in the past. We can learn a lot from children. I'm learning it more and more as I get older, as we know. All our hope is in the next generation. I think we've made a mess of so much, and um, um, very much my grandchildren feel that they won't do the same. Did you cry when you were a child? Do you cry now? Cry more now than I did then, funnily enough. I think I did cry, but do you know in those days you weren't supposed to? So I did yeah. cry on my own at night sometimes. I went to boarding school very young, and I really hated being sent away. I missed my mum. I missed home. And um, I sort of cried for about two weeks solid, I think, each time. And what I found very, very strange was getting on the train at Victoria Station, which we did with you know, 100 other boys all dressed in red and green and white caps and blazers, and we got on the train to go to a place called East Grinstead, I remember, from Victoria Station. And you get in a carriage, and I couldn't talk to anyone because I was just so full of tears. I had two choices. You could either go down the corridor to the toilet, or you could look steadfastly out of the window and pretend your friends weren't there. I think I just did both. But one thing I did notice is that they didn't cry, and I did. And I, I don't, I never quite understood that. that I was because I'm quite sure now that, in fact, I know one or two of them now, and they were as homesick as I was. But I think they were. We were, I think, very often brought up English middle class people, very young, not to make a fuss, not to show your feelings and stuff like that. And I, I always found that difficult. But by and large, I was a pretty happy child. Other than that, yeah, if I got ticked off at home and by my stepfather, I. I go and have a cry, but actually the f truth is I never cried in front of him. He and, uh, he and others had an expression for that, and it was a bit wet, so you just didn't, just made it worse. Uh, when we're younger, when you lose a mother and you lose a father, and you suddenly realise after you've done both those that actually you're, you're an orphan now. It's yes. odd. It's a really odd moment in your life. And I, you know, I, I, I still have moments when I, uh, I think of my mother and, and then tears come very easily. And I cry when I've written something that I am, am either very pleased with and I think it's really worked um, and it is a moment of great poignancy. And there are many moments in this, in this Fishes, when Fishes Flew, that there are many moments like that. Um, it's, it's a book that's uh, very, very close to my heart. It's not just the place, and it's the characters that I've um, created that grew out of the place. I want to finish on, on the fact that I think what is overriding both in Treasure Island and in your books, underlying everything you write is an immense kindness. Even when things are going wrong, you can't help but be kind to the world. Well, I suppose that must come from him. And I hope it maybe comes from me as well, although there are times I don't feel kind towards the world and other people. But I, I sort of know deep down that's what we could be. And I feel it mostly. Uh, and I feel that m more strongly, that sense of kindness and connection with people. And as I've got older, I feel it more and more and more. That, um, do you know I had a, a wonderful godmother? I went to see her in her home. It's uh, very ancient by this time. Mary Niven, as she was called. And Mary Niven came from Aberdeen, and she would speak in that wonderful soft sort of accent, which I loved. 
And as I was leaving, it turned out to be the last time. She said something quite extraordinary. She said, Michael, I want to say something. You must never forget. People matter. That is very true. Yeah. Um, and also, um, I, I do not wish to sound at all twee, but you, Sir Michael, matter enormously. Thank you so much for Thank you, Janet, very sharing much. so much about Treasure Island and Matters More with us today. It's been an absolute joy. It's been fun doing it. You Thank matter. you so much, Janet. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Sir Michael Mopurgo. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.